On Tuesday, March 7th, Common Sense Institute hosted Eggs in the Economy, moderated by Ed Sealover. This event featured an in-depth conversation on the upcoming local election and the facts you need to know on issues that matter most, crime, housing, workforce, and homelessness. Our panel featured Kelly Caulfield, CSI Executive Director, Mitch Morrissey, CSI 2023 Owens Early Criminal Justice Fellow, Tamara Ryan, CSI Economic Mobility Fellow, Chris Brown, CSI VP of Policy and Research, and Peter Lafari, CSI's Housing Fellow. We recorded the event and are proud to bring it to you now in a special edition of Common Sense Digest. Please enjoy Eggs in the Economy. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Kelly Caulfield, and I am the new executive director of Common Sense Institute, and I am thrilled to be here today. Thank you so much. For those who haven't been to CSI's Eggs in the Economy, this is our first event of 2023, and these are our annual, our quarterly meetings really to elevate our top policy experts and talk about issues important to Colorado. As many of you know, Common Sense Institute is laser focused on jobs and the economy and ensuring the protection and promotion of Colorado's economic freedom. We imagine a world where communities can flourish and students can be educated to their greatest potential. This year, we are repurposing eggs in the economy to be more focused on our municipal elections. We have an election coming up, did anyone know that? In just a few weeks, right? In April, we have three of our largest cities are electing the next slate of leaders. So Denver, Grand Junction, and Colorado Springs will be electing their new leaders. And then later this year, Aurora, Fort Collins, and Pueblo will also be having their municipal elections. So the goal today is to really elevate those top policy issues that based on every poll that we've seen, what is the top issue issues on voters' minds. It's housing, it's crime, it's homelessness, and it's workforce. So those are the issues we're going to tackle today. And while CSI does significant statewide policy work, in order to educate voters, business leaders, and the candidates themselves, the reports that we've issued so far this year and will issue later this year ahead of the other set of elections are more localized. They're really city reports. So it's more of the Metro Denver region, Colorado Springs, Grand Junction, and that's some of the data we'll share with you today. Speaking of candidates and elected officials, if any of you all are here today, do you mind standing up and we could take a moment to clap? Thank you for your service and thank you for being here. None of these issues could be solved alone. CSI is incredibly proud to be a nine—excuse me—a nonpartisan institute. It's going to take people coming together to tackle some of the state's largest issues. Thank you again for being here. And I also want to thank our sponsor today, Amazon. We could not do this without your generous support. Thank you to Brittany Morris. Saunders for being here and just for the impressive partnership you've had with all of us. We are eternally grateful for that support. And Amazon just continues to be making headlines in good ways. I think we just saw that the governor toured um, one of the largest 
distributing facilities in Adams County, looking at the electric vehicle fleet and just learning a ton about Amazon's really leading the way. So thank you for that, Brittany, and thanks for being here today. Who's this group of leaders? Let's take also a moment to acknowledge an amazing board of directors that oversees CSI and provides us so much strategic guidance and support. If you're a member of the board of directors for CSI, could you stand up so we could give you some applause as well? And finally, I'd also just like to thank all of our members who are in the room today. We value your membership, and without your generous support, we would not be able to conduct the research that CSI does. So thank you for your support and for your presence. I also wanted to take a moment to talk about our growing list of policy fellows. This is incredibly exciting to our organization and to our board. I call our fellows our superpowers, and I think that embarrasses them a little bit, but they are truly the secret sauce. And I think you're gonna see some new faces and some familiar faces. Many of them will be featured on our panel discussion today. But I did wanna take a quick moment to note our two newest fellows here. Tamara Ryan is CSI's first economic mobility fellow who can really focus on the worker, what does it take and how do we ensure that more workers are gainfully employed and that barriers to work, unintended barriers, are removed? We're just elated that Tamara has joined us and she'll be on our panel shortly. I also just wanna note Lang Sias, who I think is also here, was announced as CSI's 2023 Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow. Again, just so excited that Lang has joined our team. And you heard it here first, this week we are so excited to be able to announce that we will have two new Terry J. Stevenson fellows focused on energy. So that announcement should be made later. Very excited about two new fellows joining our team of nine. So moving us to 11 fellows who can truly cover the state's most important issues. And I think our energy fellows are gonna have a lot of work cut out for them. Just today, we've launched on our website a new resource. Um, this is a barricade, this is an octopus, a squid, whatever you want to call it, but the scary fact is that this represents the 55 pieces of legislation that were aimed at complying with the 2019 greenhouse gas emission reduction requirements of legislation back in 1261. This is a resource where you can hover and see the law or the regulation that has been created to comply with these new greenhouse gas emissions. So hope that you will find that to be a helpful resource and we look forward to how our fellows on energy will be digging into that and shedding a light on the impact to consumers and to business. Before we get into our panel discussion, I wanted to talk a little bit about CSI's impact. It's been a busy year. We're only in March, and our research has been featured in over 90 media mentions, and it's growing by the day. And it's on a wide variety of topics. Water, homelessness, housing, crime, healthcare, egg shortages, 
and the announcement of all these new fellows. It's hard to keep up. We're so excited about this growing team. But how do you know you're actually having an impact? Research could just sit on a shelf, right? We have to make sure it's actionable and that policymakers are reading it and using that information to make a difference on the issues that matter the most to Coloradans. I wanted to mention a few examples that we've seen already. First, in terms of housing, it is hard to escape the housing conversation right now. So many policymakers and other leaders are talking about housing. CSI was really thrilled that Peter Lafari and Evelyn Lim's 2021 Blueprint housing report has been a key resource for so many of, lead, of those leaders at the Capitol, for the candidates, as they're trying to figure out how do we solve the state's housing crisis. We even had Governor Polis um, tweet out right after the state of the state that this report and that these fellows were worth listening to, that they had ideas that could make a difference. And then second, in auto theft, Mitch Morrissey, one of our criminal justice fellows, just testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee last week talking about auto theft. CSI's report was truly a driving force behind new legislation that was introduced, bipartisan legislation, introduced by Zenzinger, Senator Zenzinger and Senator Gardner in the Senate, making auto theft of any value of car a felony. <laughs> How do we know CSI was behind this? Everyone's been talking about auto theft. We feel confident because back in 2021, Mitch and George, their report showed that 85% of vehicles stolen were valued at less than $2,500. And if current law doesn't felonize that, and current law does not currently felonize that, that level, this is changing because of CSI's work. And then finally, want to tell um, Chris Brown and the rest of the research team, in partnership with many of you and other key business groups at the Capitol, CSI worked on a cost analysis of the Fair Workweek legislation. I think while well intended, this was legislation that would have created the country's most restrictive scheduling law for our shift workers, primarily in retail, restaurant, and hospitality industries. Chris and our team were able to quantify the cost and to provide that information, not lobbying, but providing that information in a nonpartisan way to the policymakers of that committee and the bill sponsors. Chris's report showed that the cost would be between half a million to $1 million per year for a restaurant to comply with the Fair Work Week legislation. As many of you all know, that legislation died in committee last week, and we feel like our analysis made a difference. So thank you, Chris. So now let's move to a very important date that's coming up. Let's talk about the elections here in the Metro Denver region. As I said earlier, when we did statewide, when we saw statewide polling, these were the top four issues. It's hard to escape them. But in order to ensure we're having a smart vote, that we are continuing to elevate these issues, we need the facts. 
So I'm going to briefly go through um, top line just some of the results of the Denver reports that CSI just issued. So we're going to start with crime. And it, it's not pleasant to talk about this. Like, let's just be honest. We want a safer city. We know that our businesses will thrive if it's a safer community. We know our children will flourish more, too. But we have to be focused on the facts. And the facts are Denver ranks in the top 10 cities for motor vehicle theft, for property crime, as well as rape. These are not stats that any of us should be proud of. Neighborhood Scout is an interesting website, and they also issued some additional analysis since our report that confirms what our report was showing. Denver is safer than only 1% of the U.S. cities. This is information that businesses are looking at when they're deciding where to expand. This is where residents are looking at, determining where they want to buy their home. We have to get this under control. CSI's report also showed that about 15,000 vehicles are stolen, were stolen in Denver in 2022. This equals Empower Field at Bronco Stadium, if every single parking spot was full three times, this is an issue that has to get under control. CSI's analysis also went a level deeper. We're really excited about this tool. We also just launched this today on CSI's website, where you can look at crime data, not just statewide and these you know, percentages, but to look at this by city council and by neighborhood, so you can truly have an informed understanding of what crime looks like in your neighborhood. If you go to our Housing in Our Community tab on our website, which is where we have all of our crime reports, at the very top of the Denver Crime Report just today, we added this new information where you can hover over your city council um, district and see the crime rate. You can see the number of crime incidences. And I think most importantly, how has it changed over time? What has the increase or the decrease from 2018 until 2022? So I encourage you to look at that tool and to share it with your networks. District 9, as you can see here, is experiencing the highest crime in Denver. The highest increase and the number of crime incidences, excuse me, the, crime, the number of crime incidences in District 9 is 91% higher than the second worst district. This is the neighborhood tool that I referenced. You can also, you know, hey, I don't care about my district. I just want to see what's happening in my neighborhood. So this is another way to look at this information. And here's the positive. When we looked at crime by district, we found that District 2 had the lowest number of incidences. So here is an example of Harvey Park, a neighborhood in District 2, and you could get more information right there about their crime. So now we'll move on to something more positive, right? <laughs> um, housing. I know Peter will share encouraging words. We probably don't have anyone more encouraging in the space than Peter. But I'm here to deliver the facts. The housing deficit continues to remain quite sizable here in Colorado, and in Denver in particular. Our research team has estimated that the housing deficit is in the range of 13,000 to 30,000 units. 
and to meet the population growth by 2028 and close the current deficit, we need about 30 to 50,000 housing units. They must be built. This is coming at a, a time when affordability is at an all-time low for housing. The cost of purchasing a home in Denver has increased by 105% in just the past eight years. How is the American dream possible when we have such a dramatic increase in affordability? The research team also looked heavily, and I really encourage you to go to our website, commonsenseinstituteco.org, to get the full details. But we do a, a truly a deep dive in the permitting conversation. And I'm seeing the home builders and other partners here. I know this is something that you look at constantly. Our report showed that between 5,200 and 8,100 permits are needed annually through 2028 to close the housing deficit and to meet the demands of future population growth. Also, in looking at data through November of 2022, Denver has issued, I think, 7,800 permits, but that is still insufficient under the high estimates of needed permits. There is much more that needs to be done here, and CSI continues to shine a bright light on the supply and demand challenges facing Denver. Homelessness. We were thrilled that the Denver Gazette and other media partners have really run with recent data from our homelessness report that was just issued last week. And one of our big takeaways from this most recent report, which is really a follow-up to what we put out last year in October, the homelessness population is outpacing the growth of the total Denver population. Over the last five years, Denver's population, excuse me, homeless population has risen by almost 44%. I'm gonna say that again, has increased by 44%, and that is nearly 12 times faster than the city's total population growth. Denver is still on track to spend $1.4 billion over the 21 to 23 time period on homelessness. This is not a resource problem. That is significant funding. A lot of that is federal stimulus, but it is also state and local dollars. We need to ask our candidates and our elected officials, what is the plan for this money, and how do we ensure the strongest ROI of how we are targeting that funding and services for a vulnerable population? And then the final tidbit I would add um, on homelessness, and our panel will add more, is that when we calculated the purse spending on people experiencing homeless, it's a range, but it's a powerful range. It's somewhere between forty dollars and $70,000 a person is being spent to help the homeless population. So this is a critical issue. It is a, a an issue about humanity that we have to prioritize. And then finally, I would just say in terms of workforce, CSI produces job reports, and in our latest one, we showed really low unemployment, which is great. It's dropped to about 3.3%, the lowest since right about when the pandemic started in February of 2020. And I think it's interesting to note, where are we getting our job growth in Denver? I think that has important implications for talent acquisition, other talent shortage issues that we are dealing with as a community. 
Our data was showing that 60% of the job growth is coming from the professional services and business sector, creating between 54,000 and 92,000 jobs. We talked a little bit already about the Fair Work Week legislation. It would have been the most restrictive scheduling law in the country and that died in committee. So a lot to, to take through here for workforce, and I know Tamara will add a lot more color as um, the panel kicks off. So I've presented, I feel, kind of the hard part, the, the data, the facts, but there's some hope here because we have a panel of experts to talk about solutions and policy considerations for our next slate of municipal leaders. I am going to introduce them now, and I would ask that they make their way up to the stage as I, as I do that. I want to first introduce Peter Lafari. Peter is the Chief Executive Officer of Maker Housing Partners, a public housing authority based in Adams County. He is our current housing fellow at Common Sense Institute, and he also provides strategic guidance to Rocky Mountain Partnership as a co-chair of their steering committee. Peter was also the 2021 Terry J. Stevenson Fellow alongside Evelyn Lim and co-authored, I see Evelyn in the back, um, the housing blueprint that truly has become a significant resource for policymakers trying to figure out how we can tackle housing unaffordability in our state. I also want to introduce Tamara Ryan, who I mentioned earlier. We're thrilled. Tamara is CSI's first ever economic mobility fellow. She is also the CEO of Women's Bean Project. It's a social enterprise entity providing employment services to women who are attempting to break the cycle of chronic unemployment and poverty. Tamara is also a former partner and board member for Social Ventures, excuse me, Social Venture Partners Denver and the Social Enterprise Alliance. And she's the author of a few books, which I am very excited to read. Thank you, Tamara. I also wanted to introduce Mitch Morrissey to join our panel. He has been with CSI for over a year and a half now, I believe as one of our criminal justice fellows, which we have just renamed as the Owens Early Criminal Justice Fellowship. Many of you all know Mitch. He served as the district attorney for the second judicial district covering Denver, Colorado from 2005 through 2017. Significant amount of time. He is also internationally recognized for his expertise in DNA technology and applying that technology to solve crimes. He also currently runs a company that solves cold cases with DNA and investigative genetic genealogy. Thank you, Mitch, for being here today. And last but not least, CSI's own Chris Brown, who's our Vice President of Policy and Research, where he leads significant research coming out of this organization. And I believe Chris has been with CSI for almost six years now, and before that spent over 10 years in DC working for REMI, the Regional Economic Models Incorporated, really establishing the REMI DC office. And while I said Chris is overseeing all of the research in CSI, he has a particular interest and focus, I believe, on para, healthcare policy, energy, and education. Thank you so much, Chris, for being on the panel. 
Last but not least, I'm very excited to welcome back to the stage a, moder a fan favorite, a moderator that we've had a few times, Ed Sealover, but with a new title and a new organization. Ed, pretty recently, has joined the Colorado Chamber of Commerce as their Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and the editor for the Chamber's recently launched news site, the sum and the substance to cover business policy issues. And he will be excellent at that because he has spent nearly 30 years as a journalist before taking this role at the chamber, including 14 years at the Denver Business Journal. I think all of us can remember a time that we've read one of Ed's articles and just were so much better for it and much more educated. So thank you, Ed, for your service and thank you for moderating this discussion. I'll Thanks. give it to you. Well, thank you all for being here today, and thank you especially to the four panelists on the stage here. I'm hoping that we can uh, elucidate some of these issues pretty well, uh, talk about both what we're dealing with and maybe what some of the candidates for office, both in Denver and some of the cities around Denver, should be thinking about uh, as, they, uh, as they ask voters for their support this year. Uh, Mitch, I want to start with you, because I, I think crime seems to be on everyone's mind here. So uh, I'll start out simply and ask you, um, how does the next mayor solve crime? Um, in all seriousness, um, what, what do well, you showed some pretty sobering statistics here, and we'll go back over those in a second, but uh, as someone who's dealt with this, what does the next mayor, what does the next council need to be thinking about? Everyone says they want to reduce crime. How does someone who is looking to run Denver or one of the surrounding cities really think about how they should go about that? Well, first of all, good morning. Um, and we couldn't do any of these reports, and Dr. Meyer over there, Stephen, does all the number crunching and everything, and it would be impossible for us to get out the reports that we do around crime. And when I say we, I include George Brockler, who's never here, because he does a radio show. But Stephen's over there, and Stephen, thank you so much for all your hard work. Um, let me give you an example. Kelly talked about us being up at the legislature the other day. Mayor Kaufman is here. He was there. Mayor Hancock appeared and testified. The mayors came to the legislature. And I gotta tell you, uh, whoever is the next mayor of Denver, good luck. Because if the legislature continues to pass the laws that they are passing that have the impact on our cities, I don't think there's an awful lot the mayor can do. Uh, there is a bill pending currently that would keep police from being able to arrest people for all kinds of things like fighting, indecent exposure, trespass, and they say the reason is that it's unfair to arrest people that are mentally ill. Well, let's treat people that are mentally ill and not let them run rampant in our cities. Uh, if you can't arrest and if you can't enforce the law, uh, it's really hard if you're a mayor or if you're a council person. So I think that's lobbying and the kind of things that have to be done at the grassroots level to prevent the kind of laws that we've seen. And auto theft's the perfect example. You know, you decriminalize auto theft to a point that Colorado becomes number one in auto thefts in the, in the country. 
Uh, Denver, in our most recent report, in cities over 100,000, Denver's number three in auto theft, number six in property crime, and sadly, number 10 in rape, sexual assaults. Uh, so there are a lot of good statistics in our report, but, you know, I used to have a lot of people ask me to run for mayor of Denver, and I used to say to my dad, you know, dad, they want me to run for mayor. And I can't quote him because he used a lot of profanity. <laughs> but uh, it was like, why would you want that crummy job? And you know, it's a difficult job. It's a huge organization that you're running. And it, without, the one thing I would do, and I know I'm going on here, is I'd go down and I'd talk to Mayor Southers in Colorado Springs. And I'd go down to Grand Junction and talk to them because the reports that we did for Colorado Springs and Grand Junction, they're a little more, a lot more uplifting than the Denver report. They're doing something right there because their crime rate is going down every year. And even though they are urban centers that are still above the state level, they're doing something right there. And whoever is running for mayor or is elected mayor should go and talk to those mayors before they're term limited and find out what they are doing that is having a positive impact on their cities. And it's not happening in Denver currently. Let me, let me dig down here because you, you, through the reports, have brought up the issue of auto theft. And I think people are certainly paying attention to that. You see the legislature acting on it. So tell me what else maybe that people should be paying attention to in this report. So we talked about the high-level numbers, but we raised the issue, you raised the issue of auto theft what else do people need to dig out and say, okay, this is the next area where you can make a difference? Property crimes in general. I think the idea that something's, quote, just a property crime, it, it, it doesn't work that way because our first crime report indicated how much that costs the people of, of Colorado. Uh, it's billions of dollars a year that it costs the taxpayers to have the crime rate that we have in our state. And so we brought that out. We brought that to the attention. I think property crimes, obviously, a crime like rape, uh, where during the pandemic we saw it decrease, and now we're seeing it where we're 10th in the country in cities over 100,000 people. Where that's where we rank. And I, you know, that, that's embarrassing to me. And it, I know that crime. And I've prosecuted many people that were responsible for taking, you know, and perpetrating that horrible crime on people. And, you know, to have our city rank where it ranks with those crimes, is it just hurts me to see that because of all the years that I put in at the Denver DA's office. And to see it just out of control is, is, is a real problem. The auto theft issue has drawn a lot of attention because it is, as Kelly mentioned, uh, the bill is going to felonize auto theft, period, not auto theft by how cool a car you steal. Right. Um, but is that a blueprint for dealing with some of these other crimes, like property theft, like rape? Do, do lawmakers need to look at, okay, just raising penalties, or are there other ways that they should think about going about stopping these things? One of the sponsors said he, his goal was to make auto theft a crime in the state of Colorado again, Bob Gardner. And I really think that that does, it is a crime, but it's been decriminalized to the point 
where it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous. The other thing that we showed in our report was that our current auto theft statute is based on, and I did see some very cool cars out in the parking lot, <laughs> um, that if you steal one of those cars, that's a class three felony. If you steal my car, it may be worth a couple thousand dollars. That's a misdemeanor. Um, and that's unfair to people that need to get around. They need to get their kids to school. They need to go to doctors. They need to help their parents, whatever it is they need to do. And their car may not be worth what a Mercedes-Benz is worth or what a Raptor is worth, but they have a, that car's more valuable to them than probably these other cars. I get in another car if someone steals my car. I have another car. But if it's your number one asset, it may be the difference between you being homeless or being able to get to work so you can pay your rent. And it's unfair to have that monetary amount drive what level felony that it is. So this bill, and what I like about this bill, is that it gets rid of that. And it makes stealing a car a felony, and, it's, and you can go about your business and do it. You know? So I think we just need to send a message to professional auto thieves that if you're going to steal people's cars, if you're going to steal three cars a night, four cars a night, you get caught, you're going to be held accountable in the state of Colorado. The difference I saw in, Colorado, in the Colorado Springs report and in the Grand Junction report is their auto theft is under control and their crime rate is under control. That's the opposite of what we saw in the Denver report. Well, let me, let me turn this a little bit um, uh, to another part of uh, dealing with crime that I, I think people have been talking about for the last two decades, and that's recidivism. Tamara, you deal with a lot of women who have formerly been incarcerated, getting them back into the workforce. How do you look at how we as a society, whether it be government or private sector here in the Denver area, are doing with that? Are people actually creating a pipeline for the formerly incarcerated to get back to work? Do we need to talk more about that? Well, we do need to talk more about it. The, the statistics are that for people who were formerly incarcerated, the unemployment rate after a year of being out of prison is 75%. And yet we know that the number one indicator of rearrest is being unemployed in the year prior to the arrest. So what I would, and we are at a point in our country where a third of US adults have some sort of criminal background. So if we eliminate all of those people from being able to move into the workforce, we've got a problem collectively. We don't have enough workers. So I would encourage employers to open their hearts and minds to the idea that people can be hired based on talent potential rather than background. Because what we know is that when you hire someone with a criminal background, they are more loyal, the retention is better, and when you get five years past the last arrest, those people who have not been arrested for five years pose no more, in, no more of a risk than any other person in our general population. So really, employment is the key to breaking out of poverty and getting out of prison. And, and there's, a, there's another point that when someone is coming out of incarceration and has certain criteria that they have to meet, you can't make it impossible for them to do that. 
You know, you can't have them going to treatment somewhere where the bus doesn't run and they don't have a car. You can't make it impossible for them to succeed. And we need to look at that a little bit more mm -hmm. to see if, okay, if you put someone out on parole, are the things that you're requiring them to do, certainly they're important, but they, are they possible for them to do? Because if they aren't, they give up, they reoffend, they go back to the penitentiary. Well, this is great, and I wanna come back to workforce in a second, but I wanna drop Peter into this conversation here because as much as people are thinking about crime, they're also thinking about housing, and that's a statewide issue right now. Let's turn toward the cities, though. I mean, what can cities do right now? Based on your research and, and what you see that's being offered, both at the local and state level, what can someone who is expected to lead a city in this area really focus on to increase uh, housing, increase housing affordability, to get more people into housing. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ed. <clears throat> uh, first and foremost, we have to be honest with ourselves and our constituents, just as we are in every boardroom and kitchen table across the state where we you know, have to balance a budget and be honest with ourselves to say we're failing miserably, okay? We have a problem. I, I, I actually call it the great American housing depression. Um, there's no starter homes to be found. Uh, the types of products that are being introduced to market are at max cost. We've constrained our great developers' uh, the ability to innovate because we've legislated them uh, into inertia. Um, we do not understand what it means to be able to create the base of homes, to create a regulatory framework that allows the introduction of housing product to our market that meets the needs of all Coloradans. And it starts with the brutal truth to saying what we're doing is failing. Okay, like we look at the status quo, look at the outcomes, it's not working. And I think we have some folks in this room, Mayor Kaufman comes to mind, who's leading with, you know, with bold, you know, kind of stark reality to say, we're gonna do a different thing than what we've been doing before, and we're gonna break down these ideological kind of divides that uh, lead us to, you know, driving our city, leading our cities in ways that are inharmonious to how the greatest organizations function. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to look through all of our policies and procedures and ask ourselves, are they driving value or are they detracting value, okay? Who is driving the decisions that are being made? Why are we carrying the amount of FTE that we're carrying? Uh, is there value in our value chain? And what I would say is that if you start to look internally first, you can find so much opportunity for efficiency and proficiency gains. And so one of the things that I would recommend to any mayor is to strongly consider issuing an executive order and fast-tracking your uh, stagnated development projects that are in the pipeline. And you can you know, kind of constrain that if you want, but I would say why would we not have a whole of continuum approach, right? Our home builders are here in the room today. Uh, they're creating the American dream. Let's not constrain them. And so what I would say is let's look at our land use planning, zoning, and building codes. We're not talking enough about building codes, Ed. If we can look at how we can maximize small lot development and be able to create, frankly, less dense product that Americans actually would embrace, we hate the type of housing product that we're developing currently. Right? You know, folks that I develop, I'm very proud of my buildings. Some call them bread boxes, five over ones. They don't exist throughout the rest of the, country, the, rest of the world. Right? And so you know, why do we have to have two egresses in every building when our two egress you know, fire rated standards are killing more people per hundred folks 
than they are anywhere else in the developed world. And so that creates more waste, it creates more greenhouse gas emissions. With each square footage that is not being maximized and utilized, that square footage lost, yet we still have to pay for it. And so the other thing I'd say is, you know, this, this discussion between are you a NIMBY, are you a YIMBY, is, a, is a, false, a false narrative, right? When it comes down to it, we all are uncomfortable with change within our communities. That's a healthy thing. It's a defense mechanism to ensure that our communities are safe, as, as my co-fellow has shared. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that in 1980, we built 40% of all the homes in America were starter homes, 1,200 square foot or less. Why are we now delivering less than 8% of that stock when anyone you talk to wants to create more starter homes? And so what I would say to a mayor is go ahead and announce a starter home challenge. Bring in our home builders, bring in our general contractors, have a competition of ideas. Don't fall victim to one side, right? I'd also say like, let's look at inclusionary zoning as a failed construct, right? And perhaps there's other incentives that can drive outcomes that are beating what we are currently delivering. One of the things that I think we're all waiting for here, and, and we're seeing you know, every day new bills being introduced to the legislature to deal with housing in various ways, but I think the one that everyone is waiting for is the bill coming from the governor's office that's really going to kind of step over some of the local authority and say, if you're on a, a transit-oriented line, you can build more. If you already have a home and you want to build an accessory dwelling unit, you can build more. Is that something we need to talk about going to? That seems to be, in some ways, a, a panacea for people at the Capitol right now. It, <laughs> Is that going to get us where you think we need to go? Well, I, I think like, if we just look at labor hour productivity gains in the, in the sector, it's abysmal, okay? It's less than half of all other sectors of the global economy combined. Um, 2021, uh, with the great work here in the Institute, my co-fellow, we highlighted the McKinsey report that demonstrated that and asked general contractors, the folks that are actually doing the work, what it is that is impeding your ability to deliver product in the uh, cost uh, framework that folks can, uh, can afford is because of our disaggregated project-specific hyper-local markets, right? And so we do have local governments that are crushing it, right? They're doing everything within their power. But if we don't harness the fundamental elements of what has driven America to frankly liberate the world, as I've mentioned before on this stage, right? We created the largest manufacturing industry the world had ever seen. We went to Europe, we went to the Pacific, we gave our blood and treasure to liberate the world. We can do this, we're not doing it currently because each and every local government has such significant different codes that we have to start from scratch each time. Right? And so that drives uh, the economies of scale into negative territory. And so unless we can get on board with regional solutions on our own volition and be able to create some consistency, some transparency and predictability for our, our businesses to be able to enter into markets, you know, kind of pencil out their cost of business and the required rate of return, we're not going to be able to crack this nut and drive productivity gains to the levels we see in other sectors. I've mentioned this before, but you know, we used to build every car in this country by hand, right? Now we don't, right? We've had you know, mountain manufacturing, we've harnessed lean manufacturing technology. We don't do that in housing, right? We still build some cars by hand, they cost the amount of homes. Right? And so imagine any other industry where you were forced to be able to hyper, have to bring your product to market in the way that we bring housing. That is the problem that statewide land use 
policies are looking to address. It is super controversial, it is uncomfortable, folks feel like it's overreach, but ultimately what we're seeing in other industries, we're not seeing in the home building industry, and we have to ask ourselves why. From the research and the work that we've done at the Institute and others, and what we've identified is because of that fractured regulatory environment, which creates significant barriers to entry and ultimately impacts the ability for Coloradans to access products that they can acquire. And Chris, I want to pull you in real quick because we're going to talk about homelessness more later, but I think that is one of the debates around homelessness. Is, is homelessness being influenced more by uh, mental health, uh, substance abuse issues, or, or these high housing prices? How much is housing contributing to homelessness right now, the prices from what you've researched? 42.7%. No, I, I, it's, it's a, no I, I, sorry, but no, it's a, it, is, um, yeah, it is undoubtedly a contributing factor. I mean, you know, I think the, 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 the reality when you look at uh, homelessness and the homeless, the, the, the figures related to the population, you know, Kelly mentioned some of the, the highlight, the top line numbers on the overall population. I think some of the more concerning, the more concerning figures for me are both the growth in the unsheltered, Newly homeless, the number of newly homeless in Denver has grown by about 250% in the last four or five years, so this predates the, the pandemic. The chronically uh, homeless, which are individuals who are homeless for an extended period of time, has grown by about 250% as well. So economic instability, whether that's high prices, housing, uh, are all contributing factors, and I guess on this point, and I, I, you know, we could talk about this a little bit later. But the intersection I see here with with crime is we have a a problem, an immediate problem with with homelessness and and the individuals suffering the impacts on businesses, on streets, on, on <coughs> residential areas. But there's also a long term, and you can't you, you kind of have to separate both of those from a policy standpoint. Similar with crime, right? We have we have an immediate issue. That doesn't mean we don't care about third grade reading levels, but, but just caring about the, the long term and those more systemic issues doesn't necessarily address the immediate problem we have at the moment. Okay. Let me shift. I'm going to come back here to Tamara, and let's talk about workforce here, because mm -hmm. I think finding and, and uh, retaining a skilled workforce is at the top of the list of issues for most employers here in the Denver area. I'm curious, from what you're seeing, what are the top challenges for getting people into these jobs for A, training them, uh, and, and B, for being able to keep them in jobs right now? How do you view... Uh, the issue of, of workforce development and what we need to be talking about? Well, what I've seen is that the, the pandemic really disrupted everything around workforce. Uh, we lost a lot of people, women in particular, to the workforce because they couldn't make childcare or homeschooling their kid or you know whatever that was, all those pressures, they couldn't make that work and continue to work. Um, and so, and what I also see is that um, so we hire women by definition who are chronically unemployed, who have lots of barriers to employment. And yet, the post-pandemic, um, what we're seeing is that their barriers, the barriers of the women we're hiring today are much, much higher than they've ever been before. And it, to the point where we've developed this expression we call personal readiness, that we can't even begin to work on job readiness until we work on personal readiness. And what personal readiness looks like is having a stable home. You can't, if someone doesn't have a place to go home every night, you can't expect them to come to work every day. Um, having stable health care, 
having stable mental health care, um, being clean and sober, and having a support system around you to maintain that sobriety. Those were all things that were sort of underlying, but really were exacerbated with the pandemic. And what I know is that if we're experiencing that, what that's, what's happening is that's bleeding down into all employers. We recently had a conversation with an, a restaurateur in Fort Collins, and as they described their employ, employees, they were no different than the employees we traditionally hire at Women's Bean Project, which tells me that, that these challenges are not just isolated to, you know, we're designed to, to be helping people with these barriers to employment. The, the challenge is that it's pervasive across our, our communities. And so I think as employers and as communities, we need to acknowledge that and begin to, to help it, to support people getting back into the workforce. We need to make sure that we have enough childcare. We need to make sure that we, um, we are supporting people in their sobriety, that we are actually giving people an opportunity once they're released from prison so that they don't backslide into behaviors that got them into prison in the first place. And so I, I think we, many of us have sort of mentally, at least we want to move on from COVID. The reality is that, that, that the ramifications of COVID are still pervading our communities at, at, in our most vulnerable population. So when you look at all this range of ideas, whether it be childcare or helping people stay sober, what do you view as the role of the public sector versus the private sector employer in this? Well, I think one of the things that happened is that we sort of were forced to acknowledge that people bring their whole selves to work. You know, and, and I don't think, I think we kept that kind of separate um, for employers um, in the past. And what, what I see is that as employers, we are now being forced to think more about what, what other supports people need. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that uh, we, have to, we have to have expensive solutions, but you know, relatively inexpensive things like employee assistance programs uh, for employers to add those, those kinds of supports. Um, so I think um, it, it, what it's gonna take is our communities um, both our um, government and our employers working together to try to address people as whole people. Okay. Now, um, in, in another thing that is an issue that kind of crosses over both public and private sector is the issue of wages right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, as much as we see housing prices going up, we see wage prices going up. We see minimum wage prices going up. Um, where does where does the public and private sector cross over and either help or hurt each other here? I mean, how do employers need to think more about the wages they're paying, and how should government leaders, potential government leaders, think about wages that are going to be mandated? Well, I think they have to remember that there are unintended consequences of increasing minimum wage, especially as we've done it very drastically since 2016, uh, or starting in 2017. And one of those things is that employers have to adjust. If their cost of labor goes up, then they're going to have to make adjustments. Perhaps they're going to invest more in technology so that they don't have frontline workers doing checkout and things like that. Or they're going to cut people's hours. So we know there have been 100 studies that have been done that show that increased minimum wage actually decreases full-time employment. So we're working at cross purposes in that regard. The other thing to keep in mind is that even at $17.29 an hour, which is Denver's current minimum wage, uh, that is, there is still a gap between minimum wage and self-sufficiency standards. 
the self-sufficiency standard in Denver County and Arapahoe County and Douglas County is about $85,000 a year for, a, for an adult with a preschooler and a child. And 1729 an hour comes out to be about $36,000 a year. So when we're looking at people who are likely to earn minimum wage, those tend to be, if you take out the teenagers and you know, people in college, those tend to be our most vulnerable workers. Those are the people who are trying to get back into the workforce, who have barriers to employment, who are trying to move up in the pay scale, who hopefully at some point will get to self-sufficiency wage. But in the meantime, what, we, what they're going to need is some form of public subsidy, whether that is housing subsidy, SNAP, food stamp, uh, childcare assistance, a pretty wide variety of safety net programs. The challenge we have right now is that at $17.29 an hour, uh, the benefits get cut pretty dramatically. So what we're doing basically is we're increasing people to $17.29 an hour, and at the same time, all of those benefits, either your, your subsidy decreases or you get, you get a cliff entirely. We're going to be coming out with a paper in a couple weeks about this. But I think it's re remembering that while the intention of moving people up the pay scale is a, is a good intention, it, they, we have to remember that there are unintended consequences of making a change so dramatic. And Peter, I want to pull you in because I've heard more in the past couple years linking housing and income than I ever had before. This idea of income-restricted housing, that you should pay no more than 30%, for example, of your, of your earnings, no matter what your earnings could be. Is this an idea that is going to help us deal with the current housing crisis, or is this going to get in the way of, of producing houses that need to be produced? Yeah, or I, both? I, you know, it's a, it's a noble endeavor, but first and foremost, we need to kind of come back to, you know, driving our decisions by logic and smart goals. You know, I was mentioning before, you know, you don't have the luxury at your kitchen table to just, you know, wish yourself into having income that is 30% aligned <laughs> with your housing costs. You have to live in the, the brutal truth of, of your specific situation. I think it's a false narrative that drives people away from those core elements, which is why do we loathe building? Why are we so adverse to the men and women who create the foundation of our very lives, right? As we talked about before, Maslow's hierarchy, right? And so if you're going to run around and start to ask yourself, well, I hear this a lot in progressive circles, which is, well, if businesses would just pay more money, everything would be fine. Or this idea that, you know, it's just landlord greed or developer greed. Really what it is, is Americans just don't understand what it's gonna take to be able to create the future communities of Denver, the future communities of Colorado. And, and, and for me, you know, I just think back to when we first took flight off that great beach in North Carolina, or when we broke the speed of sound, right? Or we just harnessed the power of the darn sun in a laboratory in California, um, you know, we know what we need to do. We just, for whatever reason, treat housing differently than we do any other societal concern, right? We have a winner-takes-all political construct, right? So why are we relitigating what we've already decided by law and in practice because we're acting more like the Europeans, as I've mentioned before, right? The precautionary principle, oh my goodness, traffic, let's study traffic. No, stu no traffic study looks forward. It's all lagging, right? So my, my call to action here is to say, let's harness the American exceptionalism that we seem to have forgotten 
let's start creating some dang starter homes and ask ourselves which codes either drive the creation of starter homes, and that leads us straight into condo defects, right? So Ted Lighty in the room today, we just had the opportunity to present to the next generation of leaders at Leadership Denver last week. Multiple people stood up and said, why can't we get this dang condo defect thing right? Right? And what I would say to you know, those leaders is run for office and make it your priority and get it right. And go to the Hill, go, uh, go to the Capitol, shadow lawmakers for a week, and you can understand the trade-offs that they're dealing with. Right? Because again, we want to solve this problem, but when push comes to shove, we default to parking. We default to single family zoning as the pentathlon of what we're capable of doing, and so we shut all other development down. And my hypothesis is because we build terrible buildings. Not because we have terrible builders, but because we have unworkable codes, right? The foundation of our society, the greatest generation, they were housed out of a catalog. We can do that again. We could have pattern zoning, right? We could have gentle density. Right? But we fall into these kind of false narrative traps that say, well, it's not going to be affordable enough anyway. Right? It's a continuum. The product that we develop at market now becomes attainable and affordable in 15 to 20 years. The problem is, is that because we're 20 to 30 years behind, Ed, we're playing catch up and Coloradans don't trust the messenger. It is the ultimate social contract, housing is. Right? You have to buy what your local elected officials are selling you. Right? And then that codifies into laws, policies, procedures. Come back to the say, at the end of the day, if you want to be able to create a housing environment where folks are paying 30% of their gross income towards their housing costs, we have to have a housing renaissance, a housing revolution. The numbers that Chris and the team and Stephen have thrown up on the board, we need to best those. Right? And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if somebody is setting a target and we are holding ourselves accountable, just like in every boardroom, as I mentioned before, to say, what is our starter home target for the state of Colorado? We don't have one, right? Are our land use planning and zoning constructs, our methodologies, driving the successful creation and attainment of that goal, or are they detracting? We don't have goals, so we're adrift at sea, and our engine has broken down, right? And so I would like to be one of the ones that are bailing out the boat, utilizing the efforts of our great American businesses to be able to move where we need to, and then start to see how crime starts to detract. Because we lose kids at eight years old. I see it in my communities, right? Nobody runs to a gang because they, because they think it's going to be their ultimate for the rest of their lives. They're fleeing trauma, pain, and abuse. Trauma, pain, and abuse is associated, as Tamara mentioned, with, with a lack of housing stability. Right, and, and so and that's me, where I'd say. And I want to pull Chris in here because um, you know there's so much talk about this. Chris, as you look at what people need to be thinking about when they are considering solutions to homelessness, can we build our way out of homelessness, or how do people think about housing? How do you look at what people need to be thinking about uh, when they're looking at tackling homelessness? No, thanks for that question. I I guess you know we started looking at homelessness and the issues surrounding homelessness and particularly trying to look at resources. What are the resources in this ecosystem, if you will, three, four years ago? So we've issued now three or four reports. Eric, who has been helping today and is fantastic, has dug through way too many PDFs trying to pull together these numbers to understand. But I, I think if I were to you know, 
make any suggestions or at least indicate where I would be looking to leadership in defining the solution set for the addressing this issue is really thinking about the issue as a system, a system of entry and exit. You know, the federal government calls this the continuum of care and, and they fund it in such. They talk about housing as a continuum from, from falling into homelessness, being stably housed and rehousing. And I think you really have to be, define entry and exit. There's some systems in Washington, D.C. that have, and other places in the country that have done, seen, you know, measurable improvements when they've gone to single point of entry. There's, you know, you, you're a family, you fall into homelessness, you go one place, you get your voucher, you get immediately rehoused. Um, and, and defining entry and what entry looks like, uh, which we don't quite have. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of different ways you can intake into the system. The database that is intended and funded to track and, and help understand people in the system is, is, is going through multiple iterations. Again, hopefully in the next couple of years, it's something that can be useful and have powerful dashboards. And then I think defining exit. What does exit mean? I think we hear you know, the, the, the framework of housing first, and I've heard this said before, but does that necessarily mean housing forever? Because we've seen, when you talk about resources, when you talk about public commitments, we've seen permanent supportive housing, housing that is meant to fully subsidize and permanently house individuals that otherwise couldn't house themselves more than triple in the last five, six years in the Denver metro. And so maintaining you know, long-term, multi-year uh, permanent housing for a, a growing population is, is, a, is an expensive problem. It's, it, it's, it's more detrimental possibly to some individuals that otherwise could be um, housed and, and more self-sufficient. And I think they're connected. If you, the, go, the city has a goal and put out a goal last fall to reduce the experience of homelessness to less than 90 days. And, and I think if you can, the, the analysis and the numbers show that if you can aggressively address homelessness quickly and address it uh, without someone falling into the system, remaining unhoused, waiting months to uh, uh, receive a voucher, that you have better outs, outcomes and better exit, if you will, from the system. So I think it's, it's really important to define how the system works on entry and exit and define goals of what success really looks like. And I think with data and the growing database that, I, that the, 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 the um, uh, MDHI, the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative that receives in the, the funding to do this sort of coordinating of resources, improving that system, indications that that can actually make a difference. And I think the next set of leadership can should really utilize that tool to convey better information to constituents and to make better sort of policy decisions about other things that matter to the sit and lie ordinances and how those interact with entry and exit and, and a host of other policies. But I think it's thinking about this as a system and defining goals and being very clear and holding yourself accountable to those, those metrics. Let me, uh, just because there's so many ideas that are being thrown out just in the Denver mayoral race right now in terms of how to deal with homelessness. I want to throw a couple out to you. You don't have to take all of them. Just pick one and, and, and roll with it. I mean, should we be talking about things like putting people into more, creating more tiny home villages for groups of homeless? Should we be talking about uh, linking uh, 
accessing homes to going first through behavioral health or substance abuse treatment, sometimes involuntarily? Should we be doing more to figure out who could fall into homelessness and jump in there? What kind of things, based on your research, really could actually work in ideas like those? Well, I guess, yeah, a lot of ideas, right? And I, and I don't think it should be an and or entirely, right? I think, you know, the question you gave Peter before about housing, I, I like to paraphrase or quote our governor in the state of the state, mm -hmm. that this is about supply and demand. This is, you know, this is a supply and demand issue to some degree. But I'll also say that in terms of, uh, it's not just a resource problem either. So I do think it's not just a question of building more capacity, buying more hotels. It, it, that in itself creates a larger ecosystem, but it doesn't put the right parameters in place to resolve for, for many people. Um, so I think, I don't, I don't think you should be exclusive to this is gonna be better and this, and I think you can get in trouble some ways in doing that, but I do think you should have regional buy-in. We, we saw evidence, and we go back to Colorado Springs, that their unsheltered population has been cut in half. At the same time, Denver's has, has increased. And, and they've invested in a, a model of a single campus model. I know Aurora is discussing the same thing. And so this is a system, thinking about it as a system, what is the entry, what does that exit look like, and then you're putting resources, whether that's mental health support, addiction support, housing support, job training, associated with, with those, those points of entry and exit. And so, I don't Peter had some ideas as well. You know, I, I think also we have to look at the way that we're move, you know, that we process folks through our administrative channels. There's this thing called the VI Spidat. It's failing miserably, right? It's something that we should jettison because it's trying, it prioritizes individuals that might not be housing ready, that are, are homeless. And so I think what we need to do is try to move very quickly to connect with our unhoused community members who are eager and willing and ready to move into housing. There is a sizable percentage of them. Then we can start to you know, debate and create solutions for, well, some candidates have said, you know, maybe 10%, give or take, of the overall unhoused community is you know, services uh, resistant. Um, and then also, too, you know, if, if we look at the data, a better day is not coming, right? McKinney-Vento homelessness, which HUD doesn't call homelessness, but is essentially childhood homelessness because they're couch surfing and they're in their car, those numbers are proliferating in Colorado. And so there are future unhoused community members, so we have to be concurrently addressing the future kind of pipeline of individuals who are gonna find themselves on our streets while we are dealing with folks that are A, first and foremost, ready to move into housing, and then we throw a lot. Because that 10%, they don't believe they're worthy of love, right? That, this is a mental health challenge. This is a pride challenge. And when you talk to individuals, they say, I'm not, I'm not willing to go back home. I'm not willing to go to my friend's house, my family's house. I'm not willing to go to this shelter, right? So let's get all the folks housed. Let's partner that with a supply side solution. We can debate the merits of housing first, but ultimately, let's stop screening people out because of some sort of codified you know, ideological alignment from the industry to say that these people should be prioritized. Let's prioritize those that raise their hand and say, I wanna be housed. And as a housing authority CEO, I get the emails every day where people are like, if you could give me a voucher, if you could get me access to a home, I'll stop living in my car. Right? And those are the folks I think we need to focus on first. They're low-hanging fruit, and they deserve to be housed. Great. Well, I want to turn my attention to you all now, because I think we've tried to ask a lot of questions up here, but what haven't we talked about? If you have a question, raise your hand. Ma'am. 
Oh, you got a mic coming up behind you. I'm grateful for all your incredible insights, but I do have a question. It strikes me that not one of you have brought up K-12 education. We're putting a lot of young adults out into the world that don't seem to be ready for the world, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Well, I can tell you that early childhood development is one of the most important things you can do to prevent crime. And you look at studies that have been out there for generations now out of cities like Detroit, where they show that good quality early childhood development, starting kindergarten on, going all the way through, those individuals do not get in the criminal justice system. They live healthier lives. They don't suffer the same types of heart disease and things like that. I mean, these people are older than me now. I mean, and I'm old. They are studying these folks all the way through their lives and showing the impact of early childhood development and proper education throughout and how that helps groups and people stay out, be productive and stay out of a criminal justice system that's not productive. I, I, and you know, I, I appreciate that and our, our, our education fellow couldn't be here today, but I'm gonna put it back on school boards and say, what are you doing materially to house your precious workforce, right? They have available land, right? We demonstrated the ability to partner together, I, you know, through a public-private partnership, right? Don't just raise your hand and say, we need more housing. Throw your time and treasure and actually start to materially partner with developers, with local government, to create attainable housing for your workforce. Use shuttered school sites. There's a candidate for mayor that's discussing the ability to be able to partner with the new middle income housing authority to create uh, workforce housing in these decommissioned assets. I am consistently lobbying and petitioning uh, superintendents and school boards to not just say that they wanna see housing, because it starts with housing. That's when I went back to McKenney Vento, right? We gotta pay our teachers, but we also need those key leaders in their communities to show up to public hearings and say, we want this project, right? That we've dedicated some of our parking lots to the creation of, of affordable housing. Because what I see right now is a lot of rhetoric and not a lot of material partnership between school districts and affordable housing developers, both public and private, for us to be able to get to site selection, to breaking ground, to ground opening. The time for rhetoric is over. The time for partnership is now. We have the ability. I do not see it happening at the level that our kids require. Because what happens is that McKinney-Vento stat statistic, you may know it, I, I think this is a, a passion of yours based off your question, but what we can see is that if kids don't have a stable home, they don't show up at school. And our McKinney-Vento um, liaisons and specialists within schools, they're carrying caseloads of 400, 500 kids per specialist. They're burning out, they have nowhere to refer them, and so ultimately, if we want to be able to address K through 12 success, we need to house students, and we need to house administrators and educators, and we need to start to stop blaming others and address what we can do together. And there's plenty of examples where that can happen. And then we also need to bind together, because like up in Telluride and, and Nuclear and Ridgeway, they were trying to do something like this, and the school board was threatened to be recalled, there was vigorous opposition, litigation, and personal threats against the actual bodies of the individuals. 
physical threats to be able to have the audacity to be able to create teacher housing. And so for those in the room, if you served on a school board, if you're engaged with superintendents, ask them when's the last time they've showed up to a public hearing to demonstrate their support for an attainable or workforce housing project. Ask them if they've told their board that they want to sell land to a housing developer, right? That would be my call to action. Enough time for blaming others, get into the gear of making housing work, you can do it. I think also, if I yes, might, absolutely. we have a, a bit of a disconnect because we are putting a lot of energy into initiatives like apprenticeships or additional training for high demand careers. And what I see is that many of the people who would, it would make sense for them to take that path, they don't have the skill level, they have third grade reading level and math levels about the same, at the same point, some of whom have, actually have high school diplomas. Uh, it, they, they're not prepared to go into apprenticeships. And so in addition to housing people and early childhood education, we've got to make sure that we're, we're actually educating our kids and, and getting them to grade level by the time they graduate because we can't, there aren't going to be careers for third grade, people with third grade reading levels. All right, we have time for one more. Um, yes, sir. John O'Scott, Arapahoe County, running for Aurora City Council. Uh, crime, obviously n number one issue, coming up time and time again in polling. <clears throat> As a candidate, I mean, we have campaign talking points, things like that that we talk about, but instead of just a campaign talking point, what are some practical things, policy-wise, that we can do? And I'll, I'll preface it with state-level... Um, like the bill today being presented at the state capitol, it's almost as if it's designed to tie the hands of local municipalities. What are some practical policies? Or I, I would just say, if you are running for a municipal uh, election, what are some practical things that you would suggest that can help address crime? Well, I was gonna ask that. If, if, you know, if I was running for mayor, the one thing that people want when it comes to crime is they want you to have a plan and they want you to execute on it. You know, when you talk about running and you talk about candidates, you talk about what they say they're gonna do, the question is, do they do it? And you're right, the local mayors, local city council are constrained by what's going on at the state level. And those people represent people in Denver, for instance. In fact, this bill that we're talking about, where you can't arrest anybody for all of these different types of, you've got a guy exposing himself in a Safeway store and you can't arrest him, and he gets in a fight with the clerk and you can't arrest him. I mean, those are the kind of things that are going on in the legislature being run by people that are elected out of the city that has these big problems. And so you have to wonder, what are they thinking about? How far out of touch are they really when it comes to that? So what you have to do is you have to think about what your plan is and you have to execute that plan and you have to be committed to doing that every single day as an elected official. As the District Attorney of Denver, that is what I did. We had a plan, we created a program, we were committed to that program, and we wanted to see the statistics that supported what we were doing and if we were doing it right. 
And if we weren't, we changed it. I don't see that necessarily at the state level, but that's what the people, at least when they're polled in Denver, want to see, is that plan and that commitment. So what I would ask a candidate is, what are you going to do about fentanyl? What is your plan? And then a year in, what have you done to execute that plan? That's what you need to have. It's hard to do. It's hard to do because of all these other issues that we've been up here talking about. But that's what people want to see. And so, you know, good luck to you. <laughs> uh, Chris, finish this real, up. Real, real yeah. quick. I guess I would just, I would add in, you know, maybe I'm a one trick pony. I always say come back to the data. So take it for what it's worth. But I do think as an elected official in municipal government, you can understand and ask the questions of where the system, again, might be breaking down in policing, in courts, in incarceration. We see crime rates up and we know population uh, supervised, uh, supervised in, in jails and prisons is down. So we can see sort of, again, I, I didn't plan this way, this way, but really the, the sort of the, the crime rate in the end of the system and the out of the system, and something is breaking down in the middle. We have high repeat offenders. There's, and so highlighting where that is really breaking down, I think can also lead to policy discussion about reform, whether that is in the policing, whether that is in the courts and pretrial, and really emphasizing where is that breaking down. And I think, again, we have some good information on that. Mitch has really helped champion that. But um, asking those questions, again, I think can really shine a light on not just, hey, we see a problem on the front end, but really where is this breaking down? Where are people maybe not being held accountable in the way we would think they are? One thing that a, a lo local elected official, be they a mayor or a city council, have got to figure out is how do you recruit good police officers? How do you train good police officers? And how do you maintain good police officers? Keep them there for an extra decade after they're eligible to retire. We had systems like that. The legislature did things that cut into that. I asked a legislator the other day who's running for mayor as part of the Denver Police Foundation Board, what are you going to do now you've been a legislature when you go and become mayor, if you do, I doubt if he has a chance, <laughs> but what are you going to do about the problem you created? You made these people personally liable for making a mistake. No legislator's personally liable for making a mistake. No prosecutor, no judge in this state, but they are. And I'm waiting, and we're going to do a study, and it'll be too late for these elections, on the impact that that personal liability has had on us being able to recruit and retain good law enforcement, people that know how to investigate a murder case, a burglary case. Those people are gone from our departments. And you need that in order to fight those types of crimes that we want prevented. We want those people held accountable. So that's what somebody getting elected, somebody that's a mayor, ask any mayor in this state, what is the issue when it comes to your police force? They're all down. And it's an incredible problem that needs to be addressed. 
Well, on that note, we'll bring an end to the panel here, and I'd like to thank Tamara Ryan, Mitch Morrissey, Peter Lafari, and Chris Brown for this conversation. Kelly, take it away. Thank you, Ed. Thank you so much to our panel. I think that is, uh, it's contagious, your passion. We appreciate your expertise so much. Just do one more round of applause for these experts today. As we close out, it's truly my honor and pleasure to introduce Earl Wright to make some closing remarks. Earl wears many hats um, here at AMG National Trust. He is the co-founder of AMG and the chairman of the board. And we are so grateful that he is also the board chairman of CSI. And thank you, Earl, for this beautiful space it is an absolute treasure. Even 7.30 in the morning, I'm happy to be here, I can genuinely say. Take it away, Earl. Thank you. Well, Kelly, thank you. It's a very nice introduction. Um, to all of you, thank you for joining us uh, today for Eggs in the Economy. Uh, it's a good turnout, and many of you are leaders in the community, and many of you are going to go out and make a difference with regards to the information that is here. Uh, let me share very quickly, if I could, uh, somebody, what uh, they, that an individual that's the head of the Council of Foreign Affairs said. He said, if uh, you want to keep society free and a democracy function, you have to have an informed society. It seems to me that that's what we're doing here, and that's what you're doing. Um, I think you look at the uh, common sense, what we've done. And I use the word exceptional because I truly believe in it. An exceptional research team. What Kristen has gathered and Kelly has gathered as a research team and the fellows are just really, they're exceptional in their respective areas and we're very fortunate to have it. They've done work in the area of, of education. Paralegislation, I don't know if any of you know it, if, uh, paralegislation, uh, we've got a para program now that for all intents and purposes is on the way to being fully funded. Thank you, CSI. If it weren't for CSI and the research that was done there, we wouldn't be on that way. This transportation legislation was passed in the last three years. Now, whether you agree with all of it or not, a large part of that transportation legislation was based upon studies that were done by CSI. You now have the crime. There was no work being done on crime in this state. Not at the time. Who brought it up and made it a front page and made it something forefront? It was CSI and the research team that we're talking about, and you had a chance to see the fellows today. Affordable housing. Affordable housing was not something that was forefront. What happened? Our study, our two fellows brought it up and found out that, hey, we have a huge, did anybody know we had that size of a huge deficit? 50,000 short over five years? That's a lot of housing. And think about if you're an employer and you're trying to recruit people or trying to develop you know, your staff here in Colorado. That's a huge disadvantage. I could go on with education. I could go on with homelessness. But let me just say that it's our research and individuals like you that I think are going to make a difference. And I encourage you to continue to be informed. There's several things. Check out our website. Share our studies. Subscribe to our bi-weekly Common Sense newsletter. Share it. Subscribe to our podcast, Yours Truly Stars. 
Follow us on social media. And lastly, make tax-deductible contributions to support our work. Without your financial support, we couldn't do this. And we've grown from something that uh, I guess we still get a dollar out of a nickel as far as the research goes, and we're fond of saying that. But we continue to have a budget that, well, for example, this year we have a budget that is, is we think we can get all the work we want done, but we also know that we're $500,000 short on the additional work that could be done on some of the topics that are up here that will make a difference. Thank you for your support that you've given us so far. But if you find other individuals that could help us or if you find other ways you'd like to support us, we're really grateful for it. Research has never been more important. We have rising inflation. We unfortunately have uh, individuals that can't afford to live in Colorado and some people can't even afford to come to Colorado. We have rising crime. We have record housing costs, all coming at a time of growing political divisiveness. <clears throat> now more than ever, strong data, good research, your leadership and your involvement can make a difference. And it's not just CSI, it's you as well as the kind of research that we have. We want to tackle more issues like health care. We've got a real problem in Colorado. It's right in front of us. We pointed out that we have rising health care costs with some well-intended legislation. But if you don't understand what's going on down at the state house, you're not going to understand, you're not going to know the impact until it already has hit you. So I encourage you to read the health care reports that we've done. Energy, all well-intended. And if you want zero carbon, okay, that's fine. We're going to have an energy fellow that's going to look at that issue and say, hey, what are the energy policies that are going on in Colorado at the present time? And is there a better way that we could possibly put things together instead of having a doubling of utility costs over a five-year period of time, which impacts the bottom two quintiles of our population? That's what's going on. And is there a better way? Can we do it? and still achieve what we're trying to ultimately achieve by 2050 and the state be a part of that. We can responsibly come up with additional research, provide that to you and the populace, and I said, keep us informed. A strong citizenship, citizenry will have a stronger democracy. Thank you for joining us today. Keep informed, get engaged, and guess what? We're going to have even a more effective democracy than we might have had yesterday. Thank you for coming this morning.